community as well. Um, Thomas just shared, we're in the book of Daniel, so turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Daniel 3. Um, we get to one of the most popular stories of Daniel today, uh, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, uh, the fiery furnace, all right? So for today, what I'm going to do is actually going to read the whole story. Uh, I know if you've like, maybe if you've grown up in the church or been a part of like Sunday school, you've heard this story many, many times. Um, but I'm going to read the entirety of it, all 30 verses. It'll take a little while, and then I'll dig in and kind of share what are some reflections or what are some, um, some points that we can glean from this story. All right, so I'm going to read first, and then I'm going to pray, and then dive right in. So Daniel chapter 3, and it goes, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth 6 cubits, about 90 feet. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the, the, the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, 
that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated, and he ordered some of his mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had, had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other god who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let me pray. Father, we come before you, um, this story, um, familiar to many of us, but um, God, so many um, instances where it actually can speak into our own hearts and our lives. And so God, as we just take these next few moments to kind of dig deeper and ask some harder questions of how this story actually um, can impact us and can speak to us can even challenge us too, God. I pray that you would open up our hearts. I pray that our hearts would be good soil, uh, would not be hard or rocky or hard pads, but it would be good soil that once um, your seed is is planted and rooted can grow um, fruits up to 30 times, 50 times more than what it used to produce. And so God, we know that you can do this. May your words be spoken, not mine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for the past few weeks, we've been in Daniel, right? And I just read this entire story. And um, we know that Daniel and his three friends um, were taken from Jerusalem into Babylon. Now, these, they were going to be trained as government officials in this time. But they were also being challenged with what it looked like to be um, Jews living in a foreign land with expectations that were not um, part of what God had in mind for them. Last week, Pastor Rafe shared how Daniel interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream 
But instead, if, as we jump into chapter 3, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is not really being humble or really um, following what the dream kind of revealed. The dream should have kind of humbled King Nebuchadnezzar, but in actuality, he builds a 90-foot statue, most likely of himself, and then commands everyone to bow down to it in order to prove their loyalty to him. If not, you would be thrown into the fire. Now, we don't have emperors telling us to bow down to statues like this, but as Christians, as even Thomas was mentioning, we live in exile. Earth is not our home, and there are some exilic principles here in this text that we can glean from this story. You know, for example, a question that arises from this text is how do we live as exiles when society or culture put pressure on us to live in a certain way? especially if that goes against the ways that God has commanded us. So today, I want to walk through our story by kind of sharing three realities of living in exile. Three realities. And the first one, and we see this very clear, is that the pressure and pleasures of society are great. Now, we have to remember in this story, Nebuchadnezzar was the most powerful man in that time period. There's no other person in our time that can compare to King Nebuchadnezzar. There is no equivalent. So when this man tells you to do something and presents a fiery furnace as the alternative, you listen to him. But not only that, we miss sometimes this detail in verse 2. Let me just read verse 2 again. I, you, you kind of noticed in the story, too, this kind of long list King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces. These would be people from all over the Babylonian Empire with much power and influence. In other words, he got together everybody who was somebody for this dedication. Then in verse 4, we read another list that when they would hear the horn, the pipe, the trigon, I don't know what the trigon is, but it's something musical, a harp, a bagpipe, and every kind of music. Now that phrase, every kind of music, is better translated as entire musical ensemble. So it wasn't just some random noise that we are hearing here, like, uh, like toddlers in a music class. What we're hearing here is probably the greatest musical performance ever put together in that time. It's like the halftime Super Bowl, plus the Grammys, plus a symphony orchestra concert, plus a UN council gathering, all combined into one. So when the music plays, imagine a sea of people, of important people, bowing down to the statue. That's what's before Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But in their hearts, they know God's law, specifically the second commandment in the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 4 through 5. It says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the heaven beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Bowing down to the statue would have been worshiping Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, and the gods that they worshipped, and forsaking the one true God, Yahweh. So imagine how conflicted 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have felt during this moment. Everyone is bowing down to this image. Perhaps even some of his, their other Jewish brothers. The spectacle is grand, it's majestic, and that fiery furnace with smoke billowing to the skies does not look nice for them. Would they bow? Or would you bow? Now again, I, I can't imagine any of us being in this circumstance in our lifetime today. Um, there's not a fiery furnace for us to be thrown into if we don't bow down to a particular statue. But, um, you know, it actually kind of made me think a little bit about high school. Um, to, this might surprise some of you all, but in high school, I was not the most popular kid. Um, yeah, I know. Surprising, right? Surprising. Now, just to show you some evidence, uh, I have a picture of myself um, right there. Um, you know, I was a very healthy boy, a very healthy boy, but um, also in high school, so don't get me wrong, the next slide would be me playing football. So I was actually um, a co-captain of my high school football team. Um, I got good grades, I knew a lot of people, but I wasn't really cool. And the reason was because I didn't go to any of the parties. Um, now, if you grew up in the States, not, I mean, not all of you have, but in at least the States in the high school that I grew up in, um, the parties were kind of where life was at. And the parties that I went to, um, most of them, not all, but most of them consisted of alcohol, um, sex, drugs, and just reckless behavior. Just a lot of things that you probably shouldn't do as a follower of, of Jesus. And so I didn't go, but I wanted to. Because in one sense, um, I wanted to go because I felt the, the peer pressure, right? We've kind of heard that all over high school, that in order to be cool, to fit in, to be liked, I had to go to these parties and do what they did. But in another sense, I also felt this desire for the same pleasure that my friends experienced. The pleasure of, of drinking or doing drugs or having fun or being with girls or just being involved with all the gossip when they would share during lunch period. It was desirable, um, everyone was doing it, and I'll be honest, that eventually the pressure was pretty great and I, and I went, but I tried to go without doing those things and uh, it was, I stopped going because there really wasn't much to, to, to do at that point. Um, <laughs> but the, the reason I share this and also kind of embarrass myself and open my high school diaries is that a lot of us, actually all of us, will feel pressures and pleasures that society will offer us that do not go along with the will of God. And unlike our story, where the, ple- where the pressure is from a 90-foot golden statue and the pleasure is from this grand spectacle of a Babylonian symphony orchestra, our pressures and pleasures come from the tiny for the hundreds of tiny idols that we have, usually on our screens. First, what's an idol? Um, Tim Keller, I think, gives one of the best definitions of an idol. He's a pastor in New York. He says this, It is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. What our modern culture does today is it will use entertainment, apps, 
news feeds, and other images and sounds to be the voices telling you what to worship. TV shows about love or family will tell you what the perfect spouse or perfect family or perfect house will give you so you pursue it, that you will go after it, that you'll even bow down a little bit to it. Nudes feeds that share vacations or types of foods or late-night hangouts, they'll tell you what you need is more experiences, more friends, more fun, so you're going to go hard after what that is. Our LinkedIn accounts or even our bank accounts can show you the success of others while also showing you how much you don't have. So you'll pursue work or achievement or success or whatever you can do to get that next title or raise or that little notch on your belt to think that you made it in life. Or some of us, which I feel like this is the most dangerous one for us nowadays, is that we like to customize our idols. We like to pick and choose what we worship, kind of like how we pick our Chipotle burrito when we order it. I'll take some family here, some kids for now, or maybe not kids for right now. I'll take some of these conveniences, that new job, that new title, a little bit of control, but I want a lot of freedom. Give me that. And we curate our idols, and eventually we realize that that idol looks a lot like ourselves. Today, we don't have one idol like in Babylon. We have a lot of tiny little idols that we're worshiping, and a lot of them look like you and me. Church, let me ask you, is there something in your life that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God? Is there something you long for so much that you believe it will give your life meaning, value, or security more than God? You know, I don't believe many of us are pressured, kind of like our friends here, to worship the idols in our world, but boy, we are attracted to them. We are definitely attracted to them. But as we go on in the story, we now see that even though Shadrach, uh, Meshach, and Abednego were not willing to bow down to this statue amidst the pressures and the pleasures they saw in a sea of bowed faces, Which leads me to my second reality. The posture of our faith must be unwavering. It must be unwavering. You know, we see quickly that as we go on our story that these officials, they maliciously accused the Jews in verse 8. That's better translated as these officials essentially chewed them out. They chewed out Meshach, uh, they they chewed out uh, these men. And what was surprising is because in Daniel 2, if you go back in Daniel 2 in verse 49, you'll see it up here, but they chew them out because uh, in 49 it says, Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Now, this is important because they essentially got a promotion. Now, these officials are most likely extremely jealous at them, so that's why they're kind of calling them out. But kind of a side note here, this story is really well known, but one I feel like even for myself, I was kind of asking, where in the world is Daniel? This, this book is about him. Where is Daniel? I don't know. Have you ever wondered that question about this story? Um, most likely, in verse 49-2, we see it's at the end it says, but Daniel remained at the king's courts. Now, 
chapter 3, verse 1, we see this statue is actually in the plains of Dura, which is about 20 miles outside of the Babylonian capital or city limits. And Daniel is supposed to remain at the king's court. So most likely what he is doing, he has to stay there to kind of be the administrator of that area, and he is not in that province with all the other officials. That's most likely the reason why we don't see Daniel in our story, but he gets to test a lot later on, and so you'll see some of the things that he faces later. But I wanted to kind of get that over because sometimes you wonder, like, where's Daniel? But So he's back in Babylon. Um, his friends are in the province of Dura. Now, back to our story here. Um, when the king finds out that they don't bow down, he's furious, right? He's extremely angry, but what's interesting is he gives them one more chance, right? He says, he warns them in verse 15, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And then he asks this really odd question, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I feel like God kind of accepted that challenge there. So all eyes are on them, and their response in verse 16 is quite extraordinary. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Just notice the confidence they have. Amidst the jealous accusations of other officials, amidst the pressures of fitting in, amidst the glitter and attraction of the event, and amidst the threat from the most powerful man on the world in the fiery furnace, they didn't deny God. They don't deny God. Just because of their circumstances that got a lot hotter, it didn't change who they believed God to be. Their faith was unwavering in the most pressure-filled circumstances. And what's key here is that though they firmly believed that God could deliver them, it didn't mean that God would deliver them. And there's a lesson in here for us, folks, that no matter the idol, whether though it's its pressures or the pleasures it offers to us, we must not bow down to anything besides God. However, sometimes there's a belief that if we obey God and follow him and denounce all those idols, that everything in our life is supposed to work out as planned. We work hard and with integrity, so we should get good marks, good titles, and, and a raise. Or we don't compromise in our relationships, so you know, we should find that right spouse or that family or have that good life. You know, we don't sin or, you know, we give faithfully in the church and we serve. So we should live, you know, a convenient, a comfortable life with no sicknesses or disasters, right? But that's not true. And if you've been in the church for a long time, you probably have experienced this. Obedience to God does not equal prosperity from God. Let me say that again. Obedience to God does not equal prosperity from God. Now, does God give blessings to his children? For sure. He does so many times over and over. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights from above that is promised in Scripture. But for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their faith in God was greater than the threat of their own lives. Church, 
would your faith remain in God even if God doesn't deliver you from your circumstances? Would your faith remain in God even if you got fired for having integrity in your job? Would you trust God even if you didn't get that one thing, that fill-in-the-blank thing that you wanted for your entire life? Would you still worship God even if you didn't get the result or you experienced that you wanted in your life? It's not an easy question to answer here. The sovereignty of God is a mystery. As Job says, God gives and God takes away. But still, blessed be the name of the Lord. So the next question is, how then does their faith, how does Shadrach's, Meshach's, and Abednego's faith remain unwavering, especially when the pressure gets this high? Which leads me to my third reality, is that they firmly believed that the presence of God was everlasting or is everlasting. Let me just read verse 24 and 25 again. It's, it's an amazing kind of part of the story here. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then we find out later that they come out of the furnace. And verse 27 says, so interestingly that they said, not even the fire, not even the smell of the fire was on them. I mean, we get the smell of fire even after a bonfire, but they, they had no smell of fire on them. For us who've heard this story a thousand or maybe a dozen times, don't let this miracle kind of simply go past you. This is an amazing miracle that God had been with these men. God rescued them from this fire. Just picture this. Have you ever been burned before? I I still have like a, a burn mark on my hand by just kind of touching an oven very quickly. Fire is extremely hot, right? That's very obvious. But if you, in this story, this furnace, and some historians kind of um, have done some research here, that when Nebuchadnezzar commanded these men to turn it up seven times hotter, it's a, kind of a, another way of saying to turn it up as hot as possible. This furnace would have been at least 1,800 degrees Fahrenheit, which is a little cooler than hot lava. Imagine just how hot this is or was. Imagine the impossible circumstance that these men would have been in. And imagine God saying that they will not die in this fire. And interestingly, God doesn't quench the flame. He very much could have. He could have sent to win and just quenched that flame. But instead, he entered the fire with them by coming down physically. Now, as Nebuchadnezzar pointed out, he says that this appearance of this man had like a son of the gods. And many scholars, commentators, pastors, we all believe kind of the same thing, that this divine being was most likely the son of God in Jesus Christ. So how does Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand up against the pleasures and pressures of Babylon? And how do we have faith that remains unwavering, even when the odds are stacked against us, because we know 
that in the fire, God is always with us. He was always with them, and he was always with us. Even though they were living in a foreign land under foreign rulers with foreign laws that were against God's ways, God was still with them. Church, every single one of us have bowed down to an idol in our life, maybe even this past week, maybe in the future again. As John Calvin, a 14th century theologian, says, our hearts are idol-making factories. Not only that, but we are being constantly bombarded to bow down to these idols, whether by the pressures or the pleasures. And perhaps because these idols, we find our worth in them, perhaps we just want to be bowing down to them, or perhaps we just don't know what else to do but to worship the things around us. And in the bad news, for all of us, is that no matter how hard we try, we will always bow down to an idol if we try to do it on our own. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, without God, they were powerless. They would have burned very quickly in that fire. But the only reason they and we today, as Christ followers, can stand and not bow down to these idols was because Jesus came into the fire with us, that he left heaven to dwell among us, and he experienced the same pressures and pleasures and difficulties in this world, yet he remained perfect and we remained sinful. But instead of watching us be burned by the wrath of God, the punishment that we deserved as sinners, Jesus took upon all 1,800 degrees of punishment and leaving us untouched, leaving us where you couldn't even smell sin on us. Our sin and idolatry nailed Jesus on the cross, but the good news is that Jesus Jesus didn't just die for us, but that he is alive. That is the good news because in his resurrection power, we now have the power to resist and stand up against any idol, any power that's here on earth or that Satan will throw at us. And that power is in the very presence that Jesus gives to us, which is the promise of the Holy Spirit that dwells in each one of you if you believe and trust in Jesus. That no matter what you go through, a small fire or a burning furnace, that Jesus always promises that he'll be with you. That he'll he'll give you the strength that you need. He'll give you the support, the encouragement, the comfort that you need until the end of the age. And that is a promise written throughout this entire book that God has given to us. So as I begin to kind of wrap up here, um, I want to share just one quick application, or just one, one next step. You know, what I find fascinating about this story is that it's kind of tempting to believe that in our life, whenever we go through a really difficult time, um, or a fiery furnace moment, that God will just show up. Now, um, that's true, but I want to remind us that the only way Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego could have stood firm in their faith and actually recognized the presence of God with them was because they spent time in the presence of God every single day. Before being with God in the fiery furnace, they were with God in the everyday. Because if we don't spend time with God in the everyday, there is no way we will recognize when God shows up in our fiery furnace moments. 
God isn't just an emergency lifeline. I mean, he, he definitely can be. He is good and gracious. He can do that. But he is a living being. God desires a relationship with us. And as we've just entered the Lent season, church, what we have to remember is that in this time where we spend 40 plus days of preparation, of fasting, of waiting until Easter Sunday, my challenge to you is to not wait for that fiery furnace, but to spend time, even five minutes a day in the morning or evening, with God every day. So that whenever life gets tough, you know that through the countless times that you've been with God, whether it's doing a devotional, whether it's fasting, some sort of food or social media or shopping or whatnot, or whether it's reading um, the, the Lent book challenge that we have, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, whatever, whatever that may be for you, to do it, pursue it, and stay in the presence of God during this Lent season. Church, if you need help or suggestions or even just time for someone to pray over you in this, I encourage you to talk to me, to Thomas, or any one of our leaders to do that. Church, um, my prayer is that we would stay present with God so that when the fire comes or when the temptations come, we can stand firm knowing that God will always be with us. Let me pray. Father, we, um, God, there's, there's so much in this story. Um, there's, I, I feel like I could have shared 10 more other points. Um, but God, uh, in this moment, in this Lenten season, God, I, I do ask that we would not wait until the fiery furnace moments to come, that we would not wait until um, the, the glitter and the glamour of the idols or the attraction come our way um, to say, God, we need your help but that, God, we would spend the, in the mundane, in the everyday life, that we would spend trusting, praying, seeking you in your presence, knowing that in those small little moments of our lives, you remind us every single day that you are with us. And so, Father, help us in that, I pray. Um, God, I just pray for all of our folks here and those who can make it, that you would please help us to stay present in your presence every single day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.